A clap of thunder shook the house and awakened Liz with a start, and her mind had to remember where she was. Studley Plantation, Virginia, 1745, Patrick Henry. The last words of Gilliman echoed in her mind. The voice of a future leader depends on it. The voice of my Henry depends on it. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, Keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 11 from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. Plus, we'll get insights from our author, Jenny L. Cody, on why she considers this to be one of the most important chapters in the book. The whole book, and nothing but the book. (laughs) Seriously, it's quite fascinating how our epic animals actually got to affect history, just like- Excusez-moi, mon ami, have you seen your email today? No, but I can get to that later. Oh, good. It is? I mean, it is good that you have a plan. (laughs) You are so thoughtful that way. Oh, okay, uh, thanks. We, oui. I've always admired that about you, Monsieur Denis. Well, that, wait, you, you called me by my name. Bien sûr, of course, mon ami. But, but you never call, I mean, I mean, ah, uh, just count your blessings, Den. Uh, can I get you anything, Monsieur? A, a coffee? Uh, no, thanks. A ball of yarn? No. A saucer of milk? No. A sparrow? A what? No! Well, just say the word and I- Hello! Oh, hey, Max. Greetings, announcer la- uh, uh, Mr. Dinny? Mr. Den? Always grand to see you, lad. And say, have you been working out? Have I what? <laughs> Aye, lad, you look like you've been pumping iron there, uh, huh? And, and your wee tummy be gone, too. Well, I might have lost a couple of pounds, and I've been eating a lot more yogurt. And... <laughs> well, whatever you're doing, lad, it be working. Well, thanks, uh, I guess. Uh, can I get you anything, then? A, a coffee? No. A biscuit? No, no. A chew toy or something? No, no, I, I'm fine. And besides, how could you bring me coffee? <laughs> well, I. it'd be a challenge, but you're worth it, lad. Am I? Aye. Uh-huh. Well, why don't you go get settled into the studio and we'll get started real soon. <laughs> aye, aye, Captain. And I'll make sure your chair is just the way you like it. Oh, you mean facing the microphone? <laughs> you got it, lad. <laughs> if that's what you want. Uh-huh. Okay, what is the deal with these two? At least I can count on Nigel to be rational and intelligent. Huzzah! I say, what a glorious day indeed. Oh, sure is. And, might I add, Mm. you look smashing today, old boy. Well, thanks. (laughs) I must say, that's a snappy shirt you're wearing, too. Well, well, no, they're not snaps. They're buttons. (laughs) Buttons! (laughs) Jolly good there. I say, rather cheeky one. (laughs) Indeed. Oh, you're so quick on the draw. Uh (laughs) Mousie, what's all the ruckus then? Oui, what is so funny? (laughs) Well, Sir Denny, of course. Uh Listen to this. I told him his shirt was snappy, and he said, no, they're buttons. 
<laughs> buttons! <laughs> and, and they are buttons! He's a riot, this one! <laughs> and so quick with it comebacks! <laughs> Indeed, how does he do it? <laughs> well, a quick wit is a sign of great intelligence, no? <laughs> <laughs> no. Pardon? No, it wasn't all that funny. Okay, so what's going on here? Why, whatever are you referring to, old chap? You're all being so nice to me. Why, it'd be the right thing to do, of course. Uh, that's all. Oh, and uh, by the way, did you find a wee box of chocolates in your dressing room? <laughs> well, that were from me. Uh, pardon? I brought the box of chocolates. Well, I am quite surprised at both of you, Liz and Max. How dare you take credit for the gift that I gave him? No, See, here, what you used to that was my no, gift. I no, beg you, you've got a lot of dap. There are three boxes of chocolate back there. Oh, dear. I see. Well, a bit mine arrived first. Now, Max, Max I stop! Th- why are you all acting like the... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Liz, um, why did you ask me about my email? <laughs> oh, that doesn't matter now. Uh, we have another chapter to bring. Uh-huh, and that's what we're going to do right now. And then I'll check my email. Uh-oh. Oh, dear. Oh, boy. Chapter 11. Plutarch's Nine Lives. Liz was in a deep sleep. Her eyes moved rapidly behind her eyelids, and her whiskers twitched. She was dreaming about an encounter she had with Gilliman in the Iamosphere long ago in Rome. It was July 4th, A.D. 64, two weeks before Nero would fiddle while Rome burned. Liz was distraught about the animals locked up in the Circus Maximus. The Romans killed them for sport in their bloody games to entertain the masses. Gilliman was showing her panels in time that pertained to her mission. But once that was complete, she was then to go on mission to help a man by the name of Plutarch. I need to show you another leader whose conduct affected others in the past, but will also affect millions more in the future. Gilliman, touching another panel, told Liz. A man stood in the Roman Senate, talking for hours on end. This is Cato the Younger. He was Julius Caesar's worst enemy. His worst enemy? Liz wondered. But he is dressed in a toga, not in a military uniform. Indeed. He opposed the policies of Julius Caesar, fighting to preserve the Roman Republic, while Julius positioned himself to take over Rome as dictator. Cato's battlefield was for the freedom of the people— and he led them both in speech and militarily until his back was up against the wall in Utica. In fact, he was so passionate about his battle for freedom that when surrender to Julius Caesar became unavoidable, Cato drew a sword and killed himself. You mean he chose death if he could not be free? Liz wondered, shaking her head as a scene of Cato drawing his sword swirled before them. Yes, for Cato it was either liberty or death, Gilliman answered. Remember what you see here, for just as you've inspired Luke to write down the story of Jesus, you will need to inspire a man by the name of Plutarch to write down the story of Cato. He will also write about Alexander and many other men in history, and how their conduct affected the fate of all. But, Liz, you must help these characters live forever in the pages of history. 
when it comes time for Plutarch to pick up his pen. The voice of a future leader depends on it. A clap of thunder shook the house and awakened Liz with a start. She sat up and looked around. The humans stayed asleep. Rain pelted the windows, and the wind boomed against the chimney. Liz's heart was racing, and her mind had to remember where she was. Uh, Studleaf Plantation, Virginia, 1745, Patrick Henry. The last words of Gilliman echoed in her mind. The voice of a future leader depends on it. Liz looked out the window. The voice of my Henry depends on it, she said aloud to herself. She had been sleeping in the alcove of a window and could see a spring storm sweeping through the trees. Drops of rain ran down the glass, and she slowly traced them with her paw as she thought out loud, Gilliman's riddle, a voice in the past. At the beginning of this mission, he said, In order to figure out the importance of the Libertas connection, you will first need to figure out the importance of the Plutarch connection. Liz's eyelids began to get heavy again. She yawned, stretched out long and hard, closed her eyes, and leaned her head against the window pane. As she started drifting back to sleep, another thought entered her mind. Cato, oui, but with Gilliman there is always more than one connection. Soon she was asleep, this time dreaming she was back in the Greek city of Chaeronea. The wind was blowing furiously outside, but inside, the soft glow of the oil lamp danced off Liz's black fur as she gazed at the aging Greek historian Plutarch. Spread across his desk were rolls of fresh parchment and scrolls of his work. Liz sat next to a miniature ivory statue of the Greek goddess Nike, or Winged Victory, that also sat on his desk. Plutarch was hunched over, trying to finish the end of a sentence, but he was running out of ink. His pen was skipping across the bumpy parchment. I'll be back, my little muse, Plutarch said to Liz, scratching her under the chin affectionately. I need to refill my inkwell once more. I have accomplished much today. With this last biography, I now have eight lives in my book. As Plutarch left his desk, Liz slipped a piece of parchment into his symposiac, a record book of conversations with family and friends while sitting around the dinner table. He used this book, along with letters, speeches, and collected quotes, as resources to write about the lives of great heroes from history. Plutarch was starting a new genre of writing, biographies. But as he explained to his friends, my design is not to write histories, but lives, and the most glorious exploits do not always furnish us with the clearest discoveries of virtue or vice in men. Sometimes a matter of less moment, an expression or a jest, informs us better of their character and inclinations than the most famous sieges, the greatest armaments, or the bloodiest battles whatsoever. Plutarch's credo was that a man's true character was revealed in his private life rather than in his public deeds. In his research, he also discovered that men are defined by their most peculiar traits, so those were the very things he sought to uncover when writing life stories. He was out to show the consequences of men's actions 
not so much the actions themselves. He wanted to inspire men to follow the good deeds of heroes, while urging them to avoid the bad deeds of history's villains. But all the while, he cautioned that these biographies he wrote were dependent on the fallible memory of others. The true history of these events is hidden from us. Liz had supplied Plutarch with information on several characters, including Alexander the Great, Demosthenes, Cicero, Pompey, Agis, Mark Antony, Julius Caesar, and Brutus. But now she supplied the primary character for Plutarch, Pergilliman, Cato the Younger. She stretched out long and hard with her front paws before her like the Sphinx. When she pulled herself up to stretch out her back leg, she accidentally hit the miniature statue of Winged Victory, sending it falling to the floor. Quel dommage! Liz exclaimed as a piece of the statue broke when it hit the hard marble surface. She jumped off the desk and sat among the broken pieces of ivory there on the floor. Plutarch came back into the room, wondering about the crashing noise. Oh, je suis désolé. I have broken a wing, Liz meowed, her face filled with sadness. She wrapped herself around Plutarch's legs. It was an accident, mon ami. Did you do this? Plutarch frowned and squatted down next to her. Ah, oh, well, I am to blame. This statue was too large to sit on my desk with everything else piled there. He sighed and picked up the ivory fragment of Nike's broken wing. Some things do not last, even victories. The large-winged victory of Samothrace statue was carved after a victorious naval battle to remind the Greek warriors that victory is fleeting. Men must remain vigilant to protect what they have fought hard to win, or it will fly away. He furrowed his brow. The Greeks learned that costly lesson when Rome overtook them. He gave Liz an affectionate pat and left the broken statue on the floor while he sat back down at his desk. He placed the ivory wing fragment next to his scrolls. Liz sighed with relief and smiled at Plutarch. He had a gentle spirit and special affection for animals. He wrote, The obligations of law and equity reach only to mankind, but kindness and beneficence should be extended to the creatures of every species. Merci, mon ami, Liz meowed, jumping back onto his desk where Nike once stood. I hope my accident will not distract you from your next writing assignment. Your ninth life must be... Cato. Plutarch lifted his symposiac and out fell Liz's inserted paper. He cocked his head and started to read. His muttering lips moved as he read the quotations she had provided about Cato. He didn't question where he obtained this paper, for he had spent decades collecting documents such as this. Plutarch knew about Cato the Younger, having already written about his great-grandfather, Cato the Elder, but he was selective about who he chose to put into his book. He leaned forward, and a line on Liz's paper caught his attention. He read it out loud. When Cato had seen to the safety of his men, he knew Caesar was coming with his whole army to defeat him. But Cato felt that he had got the victory and had conquered Caesar in all points of justice and honesty. It was Caesar who ought to be looked upon as one surprised and vanquished, 
for he was now convicted and found guilty of those designs against his country, which he had so long practiced and so constantly denied. Plutarch continued to read Cato's story of how, in the end, he took his own life rather than be beholden to a tyrant for his acts of tyranny. Cato was the last true citizen of Rome's republic before it fell to a tyrant, Plutarch said, leaning back in his chair. Liz sat there staring at him with golden eyes, purring. He turned his gaze to her and then to the broken statue of winged victory on the floor. Indeed, nothing lasts, not even the Republic of Rome. Cato will be the ninth character in my book. This was the plan, no? Liz meowed with a coy grin. Plutarch took out a fresh scroll and started writing. Cato the Younger The family of Cato derived its first luster from his great-grandfather Cato, whose virtue gained him such great reputation and authority among the Romans as we have written in his life. This Cato was, by the loss of both his parents, left an orphan. Liz smiled as Plutarch's pen took off in writing the story of Cato the Younger. While she studied what he wrote by the light of the oil lamp, she didn't see the pair of eyes peering in the window to study her and Plutarch. Suddenly another crash sounded, this time from outside. Now what? Plutarch grumbled, scraping back his chair and getting up. Liz followed him outside to investigate. There on the terrace was a broken Grecian clay urn with a pink oleander shrub sprawled out in the scattered dirt. Plutarch looked all around but didn't see anything that could have knocked the urn off the pedestal where it sat. He put his hands on his hips and shook his head. More brokenness. Must have been a strong gust of wind. I'll have my servant tend to this later. He turned to go back inside and called back to Liz. Stay away from that plant, little muse. It's beautiful for my terrace, but poisonous to cats. We, oui, of course it is. Liz muttered, being an expert in flora. Nerium oleander, in the dogbane family of Pusinaceae. All its parts are toxic. Although it was dark, a swath of light escaped the open doorway. Liz was curious about how the oleander fell, so she walked around the fallen plant, careful not to touch it. Suddenly she spotted paw prints in the dirt on the terrace near the outside steps leading to the courtyard below. She furrowed her brow. Some creature was just here. Just as she walked over for a closer look, a gust of wind came up and scattered the dirt before she could identify the paw prints. Liz shielded her face from the blowing dirt, careful not to get any of the toxic oleander in her eyes. Boom! A crash of thunder woke Liz from her dream. She inhaled quickly and looked around the darkened room, remembering again where she was. The rain continued to pound the window, and an eerie feeling came over her. She shook her head, needing to clear her mind from these ancient dreams. Uh, perhaps something to read. I need to inspect John Henry's library for copies of Plutarch's Lives. Liz jumped down from the alcove and walked across the wooden floor. Lightning flashed, briefly lighting up the room from the window. She made her way over to a small bookshelf and traced her paw along the spines, reading the titles. Bon, 
Here we are. Plutarch's Lives, Volume 1. But uh, where is Volume 2, which contains Cato the Younger? She tipped Volume 1 forward from the shelf to see if perhaps the missing volume was behind it. When she did so, a folded note with a red seal fell onto the floor. What is this? Liz asked herself. She read the outside of the note. Your presence is requested at Kew Palace in London. Then she looked at the seal. It was the signature red wax seal for the Order of the Seven. This has been a strange night, no? Rome, Greece, and now London. She then smiled and licked her paw to brush back the fur on her face. I must look my best for my love. I am coming, cher Herbert. Liz poised her open claw over the seven seal and swiped across the wax, disappearing from the room and into the iamosphere. Ah, well done, lad. Indeed, a fine job of reading. Oui, très bien, monsieur. Uh-huh. I'm still reading my email. Oh, Rat. dear. Oh, and look, here's one from Miss Jenny. Probably just the usual stuff. I'll be the judge. It's actually a letter to her from a young fan named Victoria. Let's see, she talks about meeting Jenny a couple of years ago. Okay, uh, let's see. She says her favorite character is Al. Oh, mine too. <laughs> and she says she loves Max and Liz. Oh, uh, no, do that be nice then. Oui, what a sweet girl. Yes, yes. Uh, continuing. And she asks Miss Jenny which character is her favorite. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Uh, she doesn't say. Uh. But she does say her favorite to write is Nigel. Ha! Huzzah! <laughs> but of course, the three of you already knew all that, didn't you? Monsieur, how could we possibly Because know? you obviously read it and saw that Miss Jenny forwarded it to me, so I could answer the same question on this podcast. Who is my favorite character? Well? Hmm. I would have to say my favorite character is... Mrs. Announcer Lad. Mrs. Announcer? Or Madame Announcer. Or Lady Announcer. But, Monsieur, she is not a character. <laughs> oh, yes, she is. Trust me. And she's even my favorite author, lass. Of course, Miss Jenny does come in second. And, well, she should. And with that, I shall take us to her corner to gain some important insight into today's chapter and its vital role within the whole arc of the story. Uh, greetings, Miss Jenny. Hey, Nigel. Well, if you would, please, uh, help us uh, connect the dots, as it were, as to the role this particular chapter plays. Believe it or not, this is one of the most important chapters I wrote in The Voice of the Revolution in the Key, because it is a foundation chapter to the entire plotline for Liberty or Death, so I hope you are paying attention. One of the things I love to do is show how the animals affected history. And one of my favorite ways, of course, is for Liz to sit on the desk of these writers throughout history. It's great fun for me to have her clearly reading and observing what they're writing, but also to influence what they write about. So for this particular chapter, of course, we have her there on Plutarch's desk. And this plot line actually began in my sixth book, The Fire of the Revelation and the Fall, and it was to lead up to the entire plot line for Patrick Henry to find his voice. So it involves Cato the Younger. Now, Plutarch was a writer who essentially developed the genre of biographies. 
the reason we know about heroes and villains of antiquity in ancient Greece and Rome is because Plutarch wrote a series of books comparing the virtues and the bad qualities of these guys. And so we know about Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and so forth. So it got fun for me. Okay, well, if he had not written about Cato the Younger, then we would not know about that character in history. And as you're going to see in the following chapter, a guy named Joseph Addison, who was a playwright, would never write the play Cato. Get ready to see the importance of that play. There's layers through history of actions that were taken at a point in time that affect us today. And this was one of them, Cato the Younger. And in fact, I don't know if you've ever read Plutarch's Parallel Lives, but did you know it was one of our founding father's favorite books? When Benjamin Franklin was 11, it's his favorite book. I challenge you, go look at it and you'll see the level of writing that our founders were reading when they were your age. So I do not apologize that I write big, chunky books because I want to write up. I want to pull you up to read more than you think you can and at a level that you think you could not. So read the ancient stories of antiquity. Go read some Plutarch and you'll be impressed by what you hear. But stay tuned because this plotline is just beginning. Indeed, Miss Jenny, you're just getting warmed up, aren't you? Uh, well, well done. Uh, and I say, uh, challenging words there from the wordsmith herself. It seems she truly has a heart to teach us as well as entertain us. Well, she knows that reading good books opens up a whole world of fun and knowledge. Indeed, and Jenny's books do both. Hi, again, I'm Danny Brownlee, and I'm privileged to be the voice of Jenny's audiobooks. Now, for a number of years, parents, grandparents, and educators have recognized these stories by Jenny L. Cody not only provide some wholesome entertainment, they have great educational value. And so these folks have made numerous requests for study guides to accompany her books, uh, to allow kids to dig deeper and retain more of the great history her epic order books portray. Well, we are thrilled to now offer the first study guide, and it is specific to the story we're now podcasting, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. So now you can read the book, or listen to the audiobook, or to this podcast, of course, and then challenge yourself to see how much you've learned. Right, Nigel? Indeed. The VRK Study Guide was created by Claire Roberts Fultz, who's a professional educator, author, and veteran homeschool mom, so she knows her stuff. And she's been working alongside Jenny since page one of book one, so she knows her epic Order of the Seven as well. Who better to create this amazing study guide? Right. So for all the details on the VRK Study Guide and to order your copy, Log on to Jenny's website at epicorderofthe7.net. All one word, epicorderofthe7.net. Click on the Books tab, and you'll find all the great books by Jenny L. Cody and the VRK Study Guide. Again, that's epicorderofthe7.net. <laughs> well done, lads. Uh, but, uh, announcer, uh, I mean, uh, Mr. Denny? Max, are you still trying to butter me up? <laughs> oh, well, that'd be a wee bit silly, eh? Uh, but if you were to pick, oh, say, your second favorite here... We, uh, just, uh, uh, hypothetically speaking, of course. Uh, indeed, uh, not that it matters, you say. Uh, just as a, uh, a point of interest, perhaps. Nah. Uh, and, and hypothetically speaking, why are you all so interested in my epic order affections? Well, we just want you to like us, then. We, oui, uh, Monsieur uh, uh, 
Denny? Hypothetically speaking, of course, old chap. Nonsense. Uh, pardon? I was afraid this may happen, and so I've invited someone to join us, someone I'm especially fond of, by way of the Iamosphere. Hello, little ones. Gilliman! <laughs> so good to see you all. Uh, your announcer fellow... Uh, still Denny. So it is. Well, he invited me here for one reason. To put away this notion of who is the favorite. I recall Jesus having this same issue with his followers. But I'd like to quote from another story called The Shack by a fellow named Paul Young. Uh, the maker plays a large role in his story, and what I found fascinating is that whenever the maker spoke of anyone... He would always say something like this. Uh, meet my Scotty dog, Max. I'm especially fond of him. And this is my petite little Liz. I'm especially fond of her. Oh, and have you met my inquisitive little friend, Nigel? Uh, I'm especially fond of him. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you, Gilliman. And so you see, the maker has so much love for each of you that he has no favorites. He's especially fond of all of us. So, I can't top the maker. I'm especially fond of all of you, too. All right, but just to give you a break, my second favorite is... I? We? The one who brought me chocolates. No. Oh, yeah. But I say, three boxes? Surely you're not going to eat all of them. First, don't call me Shirley. And secondly, uh, yes... Nigel, you can have a piece. <laughs> Huzzah! I say, that takes the biscuit, old boy. <laughs> uh, no biscuits, just chocolate. Oh. Uh, well, Gilliman, can you hang around for a little while? Well, I'd love to, but... Oh, dear, look at the year. Uh, there's a nasty little skirmish brewing in Eastern Europe in 1914, uh, uh, so I must be off. Uh, well, until next time. And he's gone. Well, anyway, we need to wrap things up, too. Uh, a special thank you to Victoria for her great email, which, by the way, Jenny would love to do more of, right? I would love to read your notes and your questions. So let me hear from you. Send me a line, Jenny, at epicorderoftheseven.com. Thanks, Jenny. And she means that, too. She'd love to read your letter. That's Jenny at epicorderoftheseven.com. Well, on our next episode, we'll travel to London to meet up with Al at the King's Palace, and we'll meet Molly, his royal friend, or sometimes his royal pain, and even spend an evening at the theater. <laughs> so we'll be sure to save you a seat as well. See you then. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandee! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.